Welcome to Alphabet Soup, a podcast where we're going to work our way through a wide variety of biblical topics using the alphabet. Our goal, of course, is to understand the Bible better, but we also want to find ways in which Scripture applies to our daily lives. So with that intro, let's get to it. Welcome to B is for Blasphemy. The Greek word is blasphemia, which uh, is the obvious source of our English word blasphemy. Um, I'm headed a particular direction. Hey, we got a ton of stuff to do, so I'm going to talk very quickly, very rapidly. Apologize for that, but if we're going to get through stuff, we gotta we got to get rolling here. Um, it's B is for blasphemy, but it's really about Matthew 12, 31 and the unpardonable sin. So let me read that to you. Um, Matthew 12, 31, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. That has led to this verse, this subject, typically being called the unpardonable sin. Uh, it is, however, the sin of blasphemy. What is blasphemy? We, in English, have typically understood it as taking the Lord's name in vain. So I did a little work and, and looked up the etymology. And in fact, the Greek word blasphemia is used about 24 times, two dozen times in the New Testament. And not always about God. We typically think of blasphemy as having to do with saying bad stuff to or for or about God. And it's not necessarily. It is roughly the equivalent of our English word slander to say evil things, bad things about somebody. Again, I have no idea when you're listening to this because things last forever on the internet. Uh, You may be a decade from now, but this week, it is Christmas week. Well, Christmas is on Monday, but it is Christmas week of uh, 2023. And earlier in the week, Rudy Giuliani, who was one of President Trump's lawyers, was ordered to pay something like $15 million dollars to two women whom he had slandered. He said things that were very bad about their behavior uh, regards to the last election, accused them of crimes that he now admits he knew he knew those things that he said weren't true. And he went beyond that. He, t- he attacked them personally, and they sued him for slander and won, and the jury awarded them, I think, $15 million to split between the two of them. That word slander is roughly synonymous with the Greek word blasphemia, which we then uh, call blasphemy. It is not just to say things bad about God. In fact, about half of those two dozen times it's used in the New Testament, it is used about saying something about other believers within the church. Paul says, for example, let all anger and malice and blasphemia uh, be absent in your relationships, relationships between other people in the church. So think of blasphemy as being slander. Uh, however, in English, the word has become the word blasphemy has come to mean to say evil things about God. Uh, that may be taking his name in vain. You've heard that expression. I don't think we, we use that anymore. Anyhow, when I was a kid, we talk about taking God's name in vain, using it uh, using it profanely. In swear words, uh, and I don't want to give an example, it's like we say the N-word instead of saying the real word. I don't want to blaspheme God by taking his name in vain, even to illustrate, I assume you know what I mean. But blaspheme can be broader than that. It can be saying untrue, slanderous things about God. So, 
slander about people, blaspheme the same thing, but in contemporary English, it means slander toward God, saying evil things about God. And here in Matthew 12, 31, it says blasphemy against uh, God, against Christ, or God, will be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. That leads some people to worry that they've inadvertently committed that sin and cannot be pardoned and therefore are irretrievably doomed to an eternity in hell. So what is it? Uh, And I did a bunch of reading this week. I don't have nearly, I've probably got 10% of the library that I had when I was serving as a pastor. It just made no sense to haul back and forth from here to Oregon and then back to Arizona to haul stacks and stacks and stacks of books that realistically I'm not going to use again because I'm not weekly studying to prepare for a sermon and various lessons. I'm preparing for a podcast, but I never anticipated that or I might have hung on to some of them. Anyhow, what I did was I got down all my commentaries and and language tools and read up on the Greek word blasphemia and in the commentaries read this section from Matthew 12. It's about a, a four or five verse section where he's in a he's in a dispute with the Pharisees who accuse him of doing miracles by Beelzebub. And he says, uh, you can say that about me and it can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, again, cannot be forgiven. Um, and and uh, because this is a big topic, I mean, this is pretty important. If I've done this, then I may as well bag it, you know, just turn it all in because I've committed an unpardonable sin. The door is closed. My fate is sealed. Let's, uh, let's just get on with eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. We're going to hell. What is this? Looked in my commentaries, did all the language tools, and, and frankly, I'm surprised and disappointed. Um, we talk about the smell test. I read, I read in commentaries guys who are trying way too hard to explain this. This explanation of what is the unpardonable sin and what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. When it takes them two to three pages to explain, I'm going, now, wait a minute, you're just trying too hard. It can't be this complicated. And in fact, I don't think it is this complicated. I think these guys got a, and some of them, it's not like they went on too long. They were almost dismissive of it. I think if, if we're having that much trouble explaining what the unpardonable sin is, what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, we're probably not getting it. So here's what I want to do in this episode. And like I said, we're going to have to fly. I want to explain what I think is the unpardonable sin. Now, I'm not going to drive a stake in the ground, but I have an explanation that you decide if it passes the smell test, okay? If it does, then I think uh, Matthew 12, 31 won't give you any grief, won't trouble you, nor will Hebrews 6, and you'll understand what I mean in a minute. Let's start out with some presuppositions. Do you remember that word? We used that when we talked in a previous episode about Cornelius Van Til. And what that word means, presuppositions means, um, I'm, I'm accepting these things as truth going in, right? I'm not going to take the time to prove these things, lay them all out, lay out all the scriptural evidence, though I think it's there. Hey, I wrote a couple of books about this. The first one was Understanding Your Bible, An Introduction to Dispensationalism. And it lays out the case for dispensationalism. I am a dispensationalist. But rather than explain all of that now, and why I am a dispensationalist, 
I'm going to presuppose all of that, that you know it. And if you don't, (laughs) this is sort of self-serving, but I'm going to encourage you to go on Amazon and look for Understanding Your Bible by yours truly, subtitled An Introduction to Dispensationalism. Get it and read it. It is written in very plain, I think, bottom shelf uh, English, and I think you'll understand it. Now, whether you agree with it or not, I'm I'm not going to speculate. You do what you want, huh? You test these things, Acts uh, 17, um, 11. Uh, the, the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They listened to Paul and searched the scriptures to see if what he said was true. You do that with anything I write in that book or say on this podcast. That's your responsibility. I'm just laying some stuff out there for you to think through and see what you mean. So here we go. I am a dispensationalist. And in its basic, in its most elemental form, what that means is that throughout human history, God has had at least two programs. Now, he's had more than that, but that's getting into the weeds. He had a program and a relationship with Israel as his special people. You know that from the Old Testament. Dispensationalism takes the Bible to, to mean what it says. And God said at Sinai to Israel, to the nation Israel, you will be my treasured possession. Although all the nations on the earth are mine, you will be a nation of priests, a holy people. So he had a special relationship with the nation Israel, and they stood above all others, and he gave to them many great blessings, huh? He gave them the temple worship. He gave them the sacrifices. He gave them the Bible, the Old Testament, huh? He gave them all kinds of blessings. He gave them a land flowing with milk and honey. He gave them the priesthood. He gave them access to himself. And he promised them a glorious future. More about that in a few minutes. But he laid out what we call an eschatology, a future for the nation Israel that was going to be glorious. All of those things. Now, Israel is not his special people. He did something he never said he was going to do. You won't read about this, predicted in the Old Testament. There came a point in time when he set that special relationship with Israel aside. He didn't discard it. He just set it aside. He will resume it again. And when he did that, he decided sovereignly that he was going to uh, extend his, his love and grace and everything else to Jews and Gentiles equally, without distinction. Over and over again, Paul says that there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. We come to God equally. Listen, in the Old Testament, Gentiles could still come to God, but they came through Israel. They became Jews um, by being proselytes. They had to join Israel to come to God. That's why he sent Israel out to evangelize the world, because he had a special relationship with them, and, and Gentiles who wanted to come to God came through Israel by becoming members of that nation, by being proselytes, and by uh, uh, obeying the Mosaic law just as all the Jews had to do. That's not the case anymore. Now we can eat bacon. Now we don't have to worry about feast days. Now circumcision is not an absolute requirement. All those things. Why? Because he set aside his special relationship with Israel and now deals with Jews and Gentiles equally. That was, as I said, something God never told in prophecy that he was going to do, that he was going to set Israel aside. And in fact, Paul says in Ephesians 3 that that change was made and revealed first of all to him. He's like the father of this current dispensation and the church, the body of Christ. He says in Ephesians 2, um, I'm sorry, Ephesians 3, verse 2, 
assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, down in verse 6, just a couple of verses later. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. God did something he never said he was going to do. He said, Israel aside, and now, uh, now accepts Jews and Gentiles equally without distinction, has set aside the Mosaic law, has set aside all that Jewish stuff, and now exists the body of Christ. The mystery is, Paul says the mystery was made known to him, Paul, by revelation. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So we have two programs. God had a program with Israel when they were his special people, which he suspended and set aside Israel's special position, and now accepts and relates to Jews and Gentiles equally. It doesn't matter where I come from. Uh, My heritage is Swedish and Norwegian, Scandinavian, and Scottish. It makes no difference. I come to God by grace through faith, end of discussion, without regard to my genetic ancestry. I am not a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. doesn't matter in this dispensation. In the future, the body of Christ, the church, the body of Christ, those who remain on earth will be raptured, will be taken up to, to meet the Lord in the air. He will, at that point in time, and we don't know when that is, resume his covenant relationship with Israel. All that was suspended will be uh, reenacted, if you will, will be put back in place, and Israel will once again be his special people. They will go through, through a terrible trial by fire that we call the tribulation, huh? They will go through the refiner's fire, and then he will come and say, oh, oh, hey, wait a minute, let me stop. There are two comings of Christ. And they're, they're both talked about in the Old Testament. They are both prophesied that he will come, that Christ, the second person of the Trinity, that Messiah, will come to Israel. The first coming, I don't know why, but we call it the first advent. And that is what we will sort of uh, commemorate, celebrate on Monday. Now, listen, he was not born on December 25th. We don't know when he was born, but we can be real certain it wasn't December 25th, and that has to do with the seasons of the year and the shepherds out in the fields and all that kind of stuff. doesn't matter. There was the first advent. He was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem in a barn. It was a cave and laid in a manger, and the shepherds came, and, and all of that, what we call Christmas. That was the first advent. The word advent just means coming. He came for a specific purpose. He came to grow up, to live a sinless life, and then to be crucified on a Roman cross. Why? Because God was pouring out the wrath that I deserved on his own son. The first advent was for the purposes of redemption. He came to provide salvation to the world. Now, again, it was going to come through the nation Israel, which is why uh, Messiah's first advent, all of it, and his life and his ministry, all of it took place within the context of Israel and his relationship with them. So that was the first advent. He came to die to pay for the sins of the world so that the world could have a future with, with God. Uh, Great grace, great grace. Okay, 
He also promised in the Old Testament that there would be a second coming. I got to thinking this week, why do we call the first one the first advent and the second one the second coming? Those are synonyms, advent and coming, but it just, okay, never mind. He, uh, he promised in the Old Testament that he would come a second time. This time, after a seven-year trial by fire, a purging and a purification that we call the tribulation, Messiah will come a second time. This time, he will come to set up a kingdom on earth, a kingdom where he will rule over the whole earth. But where will he rule? He will rule from Jerusalem, and Israel will once again be his special people and and the focus of his blessings. And he will rule over the whole earth through Israel from Jerusalem, from the city of David, from the holy city. That will be the second coming. He will set up a kingdom that will last for a thousand years, and then comes the end of history. In between those uh, comings lies the body of Christ, lies this current dispensation. He dealt with Israel in the Old Testament. I, I have already suggested to you that he dealt with Israel at his first advent, his first coming, that his entire men, which is to say that the Gospels are in the same dispensational context as the Old Testament. A lot of people think that when they turn from Malachi to Matthew, something has changed. The only thing that's changed is you turn the page. God is still dealing with Israel as his special people. When he sent the, when he sent, um, the disciples out to minister, he said, don't go in the way of the lost sheep I'm sorry, go only to the lost sheep of, of Israel. Do not go into the way of the Gentiles. You see, the, the prominence of Israel continues into the Gospels. Now we're faced with a question, and that question is, if the change from God's dealings with the nation of Israel to his dealings with Jews and Gentiles equally in the dispensation where we have the body of Christ, the church, the body of Christ, when did that change take place? I've already suggested it did not take place during the Gospels because you can look at them and see that the entirety of the Gospels is focused on Israel. When did it take place? The most uh, common answer, majority rules, the most common answer for when that change took place is Acts 2 at Pentecost because at Pentecost the Holy Spirit is given. The indwelling Holy Spirit is one of the characteristics of, of those of us who are Christians. We, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Therefore, it is assumed that the change took place at Acts 2. We sometimes refer to those as Acts 2, uh, Acts 2 dispensationalists. Why? Because that is the point that they believe Israel was set aside and he began dealing with Jews and Gentiles without distinction and, and separately. And, and go ahead and eat bacon because the Mosaic law has been set aside along with that relationship with Israel, as part and parcel of that relationship with Israel. That that change took place at Pentecost in Acts 2. What I want to suggest to you is that is wrong. That's just not right. And, and I'm going to try to show you it is as plain as the nose on my face. And trust me, if you've seen my face, you know my nose is plenty plain. So what we're going to do is, again, take a too rapid look at some of the circumstances going on at Acts 2, going on at Pentecost, and see if that really looks like Jew and Gentiles are equal, or if it looks like, in fact, God is still dealing with Israel as his special people. And then I'm going to suggest a better place for drawing that line where the change takes place from Israel to the body of Christ, to the church, the body of Christ.
So let's start by looking at Pentecost, looking at Acts 2, and see what we uh, notice there. Let's first start by observing that Pentecost is a Jewish feast day. It's one of the, uh, depending on what, it's one of the five, six, or seven feast days in the Jewish calendar. It it takes place, these events in Acts chapter 2 take place in Jerusalem, and all of the people present are Jewish. There are three what are called holy convocations in the Mosaic Law. A holy convocation is um, a special high holy day when every Jew, now this is Old Testament, was expected to travel to Jerusalem. If he was physically able, he was expected to travel to Jerusalem to observe this holy convocation. And one of those is Pentecost, uh, Yom Kippur, Pentecost, and Passover. Uh, he, and so here we are at Pentecost, Jerusalem, all Jews present. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Please note that these are Jews who have, they're Jews who have come from every nation under heaven. Don't think they're Gentiles because they came from every nation. Don't read that phrase and assume we're looking at Gentiles. It says in the phrase right before they were Jews. Why does it say from every nation? Because this is a holy convocation. Now by the time we get to the New Testament era, uh, they can't travel to Jerusalem for every holy convocation, three times a year, because they live all over the Mediterranean world. They live uh, dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. So what the, uh, what the teachers of the law, the rabbis said was, at least once in your life, each of the three holy convocations, you should go to Jerusalem. You don't have to go every year, but at least once in your life, you should celebrate each one of these three. Okay, let's say you're traveling from Rome. You can't get on a 747 and fly from Rome to Jerusalem. Not possible. You have to make the trip on foot and by ship. It takes months to get from Rome to Jerusalem. Large Jewish population in Rome, and and they've got to get to... So what do they do? They go for Passover because that's one of the holy convocations. Fifty days later is the Feast of First Fruits, which we call Pentecost. Pentecost is the Greek name for it. Feast of First Fruits is the Jewish name for it. They would travel from Rome to Jerusalem for Passover. One of the other holy convocations is 50 days later, they're going to stay there and then go back to Rome. It makes economic sense for that. So what we've got is Jews from every nation under heaven. And what happens is that the disciples, the followers of Jesus who are there, begin speaking in languages that they don't know. These are Jews who uh, are believers in Jesus as the Messiah. They live in and around Jerusalem. They are there, and suddenly, miraculously, they are enabled to speak in Greek and Uh, and Latin, and all of these languages from all over the world, and these travelers suddenly hear the gospel being preached to them in their own language. And they know these guys are not uh, from these other nations. How are they enabled to speak so that I can understand them? And Peter explains what is going on. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them and said, "Uh, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, the disciples, are not drunk as you think, since it's only nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes this prophecy of Joel. In verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes on to talk about Jesus and how how he was crucified. But that was done for their benefit. 
and and that he foresaw, uh, this is uh, what, verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. You see what he's doing. He's saying Jesus was the Messiah who was promised to you. But Peter goes on to explain that Jesus, the Messiah, came the first time to die for the sins of Israel and for the world. Uh, No, uh, let all the house of Israel, this is verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. What is Pentecost? Pentecost is a gathering of exclusively Jewish people. Peter stands up and preaches to these Jewish people that Jesus, who they crucified, was in fact the Messiah. This is all entirely Jewish. It is of a piece with the Old Testament. Let's go on to chapter 3. Chapter 3 begins with Peter healing a man who had been lame from birth, who was standing at, uh, who was, I'm sorry, sitting, obviously, he can't stand, he's lame. He was sitting on the steps to the temple. Why? Because that's when people would go up to the temple and the Jews, and in their head would be acts of of uh, mitzvah, acts of mercy, of kindness that they're supposed to do. So this guy, who is a beggar, sits every day at the uh, steps up to the temple so that people going up to worship will donate, uh, put some money in his cup, and he'll be able to survive. Peter comes along, and the guy asks Peter for money, and Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus the Messiah, stand up and walk. And a guy gets up and not just walks, but he's jumping and dancing around. And all of the Jews headed into the temple say, what's going on? And Peter then preaches a, sign, a, a sermon to them. And what does he say? He says to these Jews, in fact, he starts out by saying, men of Israel, listen to me. He says, our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence. You denied the holy and righteous one. And then he goes on to say, Repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. What's going on here? Peter is preaching to Jews. Um, Now, this is, we don't know how, was it the next day after Pentecost? Was it the next week, the next month? We don't know. But he is at the steps of the temple, and he preaches, and he says, Men of Israel, this Jesus whom you crucified was the Messiah, was the promised one. Um, And and Peter explains, listen, I know you were ignorant when you did this, but you, trust me, you're going to have to read uh, chapter 3 on your own. But this Jesus whom you crucified, this was God's way of paying for your sins. Now, repent and accept that Jesus was the Messiah, and he will come back. This is, uh, this is the passage I just read. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, and that, listen, the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and he may send the Messiah, appointed for you, that is, Jesus, whom the heavens must receive until. And so what Peter is doing is saying, if you will repent and believe that the Jesus whom you crucified was the Messiah, Then Messiah will return, and the times of refreshing will come. What are those times of refreshing? The second coming, when he will set up this glorious kingdom uh, where he will rule in Jerusalem. 
What is Acts 2? It is not the shift from the Old Testament, God's dealing with Israel, to the New Testament, God is dealing with the church, the body of Christ, where Jew and Gentile are equal. It is, in fact, a continuation, clearly a continuation of the Old Testament system. We've had the first advent. He died for your sins. Now, believe that that was the Messiah. He will return and set up the times of refreshing, the kingdom, the glorious kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament. This early part of the book of Acts is entirely Jewish in every part of it. Oh, goodness, look at what's happened. I just looked up and noticed my clock. Oh, goodness. All right, I've flown as fast as I can, and I still didn't get where I wanted to get. You've got to come join me in chapter two, uh, in, in, in part two. Promise me that you'll go over now and listen to part two.